spotlighting Hawaii's leaders. We want to bring in Governor David Ige. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Lieutenant Governor, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Mayor Derek Kawakami. Thank you so much, uh, Senator, for being here. Spotlighting the issues. Where is the virus right now in our community? How much is this overall going to cost the state? How are you responding to the community's concerns? Talk about the level of citations that you guys are writing. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Kalei Suji on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs and Beachside Roofing. Well, aloha. Thank you so much for joining us here on Spotlight Hawaii. I'm Yanji Denise, joined by Ryan Kalei Suji. And Ryan, today we have a guest that we have been looking forward to speaking with for some time. That's why we've been uh, trying to get this guest on our show for some time, but it's just scheduling conflicts did not allow. But today we are lucky to bring in U.S. Representative Kai Kahele joining us this morning from the island of Maui. Uh, good morning, Congressman. Thanks so much for joining us. Aloha, Ryan Kalei and Yanji. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor for me to finally be here. I know we've been having a hard time <laughs> arranging schedules, but we are here, and I'm, I'm so um, excited to share this next 30 minutes with you. You know, there's a lot of things that we want to get through, uh, a lot of things that our community is dealing with that you have had an active role in. Uh, but we do actually want to begin with something right off the top uh, that is uh, concerning your political future. There has been a lot of rumblings uh, around political circles that you are potentially eyeing a run for governor. Uh, do you want to break any news with us here this morning? Any major announcements? But what can you tell us about the, uh, any decision that you may have that uh, you may be seeking a, a different political office? You know, Ryan, uh, you know, great question. Uh, Yanji, mahalo for that. Um, you know, as, as far as I know, Ryan, I've already announced like five times already. And so, you know, this is this is Hawaii. Uh, people like rumors. Coconut Wireless is strong through the state, but, you know, honestly, right now my focus is on uh, the critical issues facing uh, Hawaii, the first congressional district, Red Hill. I'm full speed ahead on addressing uh, those issues. So no announcement today, but stay tuned uh, and uh, we'll see. And I'm really um, just taking the time right now to to uh, to walk Hawaii uh, like Keali Makaaina Na did, Prince Kuhio, and just ho'olohe and listen to what the people are feeling and how they are feeling about the direction that the state is heading in right now. So more to come. Well, I'm interested in that more to come and also those conversations that you've been having. Um, you've been in Congress for just a short time. Why, why even ponder a, a change in your political future? Great question, Yunji. You know, I, in my last year in Congress and, and being able to spend uh, a significant time here in the district and going throughout the second congressional district, which touches every single island, and I've spent a lot of time in a district, I keep hearing things over and over and over. And it's that people are not happy with the direction the state is heading in, that it reaffirms my belief that we are drifting right now as a state. And we need to put some wind into our sails. We need to infuse new leadership into our government. We need to restore the public's trust. And ultimately, we need to have a leader that can inspire people, give people hope, and provide a strategic vision and direction for the state of Hawaii. And uh, it is one of the reasons that, um, you know, um, I'm giving serious thought to this. You know, I have young kids as well, and I have a young family. Uh, January 6th um, had a major impact on my wife and my kids. We were blocks from the Capitol on that day. And um, 
as a family, we've decided that that's not someplace right now that we would like to raise our family in and that the best place that my family can be is here in Hawaii, in Hilo, um, continuing their Hawaiian language immersion at Navahio Kalani Opu'u and growing up in Hawaii um, and the special place that we all have. So that's something that's also factoring into my decision. One of the things that initially caused some people to turn their heads and maybe led uh, some people to believe that you would be seeking office is you released a 10-point plan regarding COVID-19 and outlined some of the things that you felt that the leadership uh, failed to do in in these last few months and and these past few years in dealing with COVID-19. Can you talk to us about what sparked that um, decision to release that plan, uh, how you formulated the overall action points that you did, and why you felt that it was important to do that? Your congressional delegation has been doing our best to support the state of Hawaii and the counties at the federal level. And we did that. We delivered uh, for Hawaii this past year with the passage of the American Rescue Plan uh, that brought over $3 billion or just about $3 billion to the state um, to address the COVID pandemic and what we were dealing with right now. We gave the state the latitude to implement um, things that the state of Hawaii um, could help to shape its COVID response from education, healthcare, um, different things that people were dealing with at the time. And so I just felt very, very frustrated that towards the end of this year, and especially as the Omicron variant, um, you know, started really hitting Hawaii hard, that we weren't doing everything we could do as a state to implement those funds and provide some type of direction to where we were going as a state. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to criticize um, our, our state's leaders. You know, Governor Ige is the head of the state. And um, I, I'm so grateful that Governor Ige gave me the opportunity after my dad died to continue as in his legacy as Hilo State Senator. But there are some fundamental leadership things that um, I think differ between how I would do things and how Governor Ige and his administration Um, has decided to address COVID. And so I just felt that given Omicron, given where we were here in January, where we were still closing down schools, we were putting kids back at home in distance learning environments, parents were scrambling for childcare and daycare and calling in sick. And, you know, this is, people are tired of COVID. You know, this is the, 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 you know, we're, we're two years into this and we need to have uh, a leader at the top that provides a strategic vision for where this state is going. So um, out of ultimately sheer frustration um, with the administration's handling of the Omicron variant and people within the administration who have medical backgrounds, who should have known better and who, sh- who should have spoken up sooner, but didn't, I felt compelled to articulate what I would do if I was in that position. Now, those were 10 strategies for the legislature to consider on the opening day of the legislature as part of a COVID package. Um, whether you agreed with all 10 of them, one of them, five of them, none of them, at least something was put on the table to give the people of Hawaii a sense that we have leaders in this state thinking about how we're going to get out of this pandemic, when it goes endemic, how do we plan for future mutations of this virus, future variants of this virus, future health pandemics that are going to affect this state. Just in the last 20 years, we've had SARS, we've had um, uh, H1N1, now we have COVID. So we have to plan for future variants 
or future health pandemics, we have to create a more resilient Hawaii. Um, and, and I just felt that, that it was not me in the moment. Uh, put my thoughts down on a flight home from Los Angeles across the Pacific. Uh, sometimes I do a lot of my work up at 40,000 feet. It gives me a chance to think and um, put myself in, in, in the right space and, and conveyed that message to the people of Hawaii. And, um, you know, it's obviously triggered a lot of speculation since then. Well, you just said uh, people with medical backgrounds in the administration who should have known better. No doubt you're referring to Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. He's made his political ambitions known. Obviously, he will be running for governor, although he has yet to formally announce. Uh, Kirk Caldwell, also in a similar position, not announced yet, but, um, you know, raising money and looking like he will announce his run. And Vicky Cayetano, the other person, the only Democrat who's officially announced. Uh, what do you think of the three people who are running now when you say that you've had talks with people in the community and they don't think that the leadership is there? Are you talking specifically about the people who are running for governor or are you talking more about David Ige? You know, there's no doubt, Yanji, that having a physician as part of the Ige administration has been very helpful. Uh, and I think it's very, very early in this race. So who knows what's going to happen? But as we continue to deal with COVID, Yanji, we also need to remember that there are really critical issues facing Hawaii's families right now. The economy, education, affordable housing, agriculture, food sustainability, climate change, building a more resilient economy. Everywhere I go, multi-generational families are having to leave Hawaii because they just can't afford to live here. We cannot create a healthy community if we have a physician shortage of 800 physicians here in Hawaii, and they can't afford to come here because we can't recruit them, we can't retain them because it's too expensive to live here. You know, when I see a friend of mine uh, and his wife and their young child apply for their first home and apply for their first mortgage and bid on a home and get outbid by other people here from the mainland, how can they afford to live here? Those are the critical issues that needs to be addressed. And, um, you know, from the conversations I have throughout the state, people are having a hard time getting around the three candidates. They're not excited about the three candidates. And, and, and I really believe that the people of Hawaii deserve the best. You know, our children deserve the best. And, and when voters go to the ballot every year um, to either vote in new elected leaders or when people like myself have the opportunity to come in front of the voters to get our report card, um, and to ask for the honor to continue to serve the people of Hawaii, the best people should be on the ballot every single time. And, and uh, I, I think the people of Hawaii deserve that. The next administration, I really believe, coming out of COVID, will chart the, the, uh, the, the future of this state. And, and, and that's a future that I want to make sure I'm providing for my children and the children of Hawaii, that we're taking care of our kupuna and we're taking care of the people of Hawaii. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see where that goes. Um, honestly, I, I like all of the candidates as personal friends. I know Mayor Caldwell, you know, we, we have uh, unique ties. We both come from Hilo. Um, uh, the First Lady uh, Cayetano, um, you know, personal friend, Governor Cayetano with, with, with uh, our family, um, you know, dating back uh, quite a while. And of course, the Lieutenant Governor had a chance to serve with him in the State Senate um, and for a few years. So they're all you know, I, I've, I consider them friends. Um, I talk to them. Uh, we talk often. At the end of the day, this election is about leadership. It's about vision. It's about hope, inspiration, bringing people together, uniting this state around a common goal, 
and and you know we'll, we'll see what happens another issue that you have kind of been in the forefront of excuse me has been uh, what's happening at red hill uh recently you announced uh, last night i believe uh, about some new developments in in the situation about surveillance that has happened obviously there uh, and some malfunctioning cameras that could have been able to detect the fuel leak. Can you update us on what you've found out through these uh, conversations that you're having with the Navy? And what is the latest right now of where we stand in this whole situation? So, you know, I've now been to Red Hill multiple times. I went once as a state senator, as the Waterland uh, chair, but I only went into the, the upper tunnel. Following the November 20th incident, I was back at Red Hill on November 22nd with Congressman Case, and we toured the lower access tunnel. We're really all of the um, uh, operational piping and all, all the major stuff is in the lower access tunnel. Um, having gone multiple times to Red Hill, I go back looking for different things, taking flashlights, looking for things that I never saw the first time. One of the things I looked for in this uh, most recent trip was security cameras and footage within the facility. And there were two perfectly positioned cameras, one sitting right outside of Tank 20, that would have captured the May 6th and May 7th incident in the upper um, part of the lower access tunnel right outside Tank 20. And then just outside the door of where the November 20th incident was, was another camera perfectly positioned. So I said, hey, great. I asked whoever was on the tour with me. I'd like to see the footage. We went on to the operations room. I asked them to pull up the live camera feed at the time. And they said they couldn't do it. I asked them why. They said the cameras haven't been working for a while. So then that started getting me thinking, well, when did the cameras stop working? Uh, why did the cameras stop working? When were they being scheduled to be repaired or replaced? Come to find out, you know, there are over 90 cameras throughout the entire um, Red Hill underground bulk fuel storage facility. Uh, and I asked the question, why aren't the cameras working? And how can I get the camera footage? Because those cameras would be able to reveal a lot of information to us. Submitted a request for information from the Navy. They replied back. Their reply was that in January of 2021, a contractor cut a cable providing power to 44 out of the 57 closed circuit cameras, including the two areas, the two most important areas from May 6th and November 20th. And because of that loss of power, uh, there was no footage of either incident. And uh, they did say that a mobile device did record footage taken after November 20th, but that footage has been submitted to the PAC fleet command structure and their investigation team. Um, so, you know, this, I couldn't believe that answer. First of all, I find it, um, you know, totally unacceptable um, that a camera system, this is, this is February of 2022 and the camera system went down 13 months ago. Why isn't it fixed? Why wasn't it fixed by May, six months later? Um, I have to take the Navy's word for it, but at the same time, it just reaffirms uh, my strong belief that uh, we cannot continue to operate this facility um, to the highest standards that the Navy says meets the strategic um, importance for the nation. The Navy has failed to do that. Um, and, you know, we, we need to take every measure we can to defuel those tanks and to shut down this facility as soon as possible. And I'm committed to doing that. So the governor has said that if the Navy could prove that they would double wall the tanks or make the facility somehow safe, that he would be open to perhaps renewing uh, a lease for them to do so. Are you saying that no matter what, that Red Hill should not exist 
uh, in its current capacity. Yunji, I don't, I don't, I don't think we can do that. You know, even if you were to double wall each tank, what they call secondary containment, and part of the AOC order, because of the 2014 leak, the Navy has been looking at tank upgrade alternatives. The technology doesn't exist right now as we speak. If we even wanted to do it and we had unlimited funds, it doesn't exist. Um, they're phased in schedule to implement full secondary tank containment in at least 18, if maybe not to up to all 20 tanks, is estimated to take until 2045. Uh, that's 20 years from now. We can't wait that long. Then you talk cost. This is billions and billions of dollars. Whether it's 10 billion for secondary containment within the tanks or 10 billion to put in 40 above ground tanks someplace on the island of Oahu, that is an incredible amount of taxpayer money. But at the end of the day, even with secondary containment and, and operational changes at the Red Hill facility, structural changes, cultural changes, you are still putting the Red Hill, Moanalua, and Halaba Aquifer at risk. And, and, and I, I not, didn't necessarily feel that way six months or even a year ago. But, but how I have seen the Navy operate over the last um, two months, and, and they have been as transparent as possible. They've met with us. They've answered questions. I don't know if they necessarily hear everything we're saying or the suggestions we're making, um, because I've seen major errors on their part, even recently um, after, on February 3rd. But there's no possible way to totally eliminate risk by having those tanks there to the water aquifer. And a aquifer that is so important to the island of Oahu, that services over 77% of the island's water supply, that feeds over half a million residents from Hawaii Kai to Moanalua and all of the Eva Plain. We cannot put that at risk. Um, we, we just cannot. The military can't afford to put that at risk. Just think about the Red Hill facility. It is surrounded by the most important military command structures in the entire Indo-PACOM. The Indo-PACOM command, the Marine Forces Pacific, the US, US Army Pacific, the Pacific Air Forces, the PAC fleet, all run on the Navy's water system. So clean water, fresh water is national security. It's paramount that we protect that. And, and I am not convinced because of its expense and its technology that does not exist today and the amount of time it would take to implement that, that that is a viable option. I think we need to take that off the table. We need to figure out another way to provide the Navy and the Pentagon Strategic Fuel Reserve in Indo-PACOM. At the end of the day, you need to ask yourself, why should the island of Oahu and the one million residents that live on Oahu bear the brunt of the strategic fuel reserve for the nation, 250 million gallons of it. You can put those, uh, that fuel other places. You can come up with other solutions. But the island of Oahu has bared it for 80 years, and, and um, it's, time to, it's time to close the chapter on, on, on what has been a, um, an engineering marvel. There's no doubt about it strategically important. It helped us uh, win World War II. Um, but the threat to our aquifer is something that we can never put at risk. And the leaks that have occurred at that facility for years, we don't know what happened at the facility prior to 1995. It was classified. But what we do know is this facility has leaked. It continues to leak. It continues to have operational errors. There are culture issues there. And there's nothing that we can do to eliminate risk to the aquifer. And for those reasons, I do not support its continued operation. I think it needs to be defueled. I support the state's emergency order. And we need to shut down the Red Hill facility permanently.
I'm wondering if you can expand a little more about the relationships that you've had with and conversations you've had with these top officials in the military and, and with the Navy. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned that they have been transparent and they have been cooperating. Uh, and yet we see this pushback of them pushing back on the governor's order for the defueling of the facility. Have there been resistance uh, by them in your conversations with them? And, and how do you think that they're responding overall? And this counter message that we're hearing from, you know, those who say they are working with us and those who say they're fighting against the state. Great question. I think the uh, top military leaders here in Hawaii realize the gravity of the situation. Admiral Paparo, Admiral Aguilino, um, General Flynn, they realize the gravity of the situation. Conveying that to Washington, conveying that to the Pentagon, conveying that to members of the Senate and House Armed Services Committee. You know, my colleagues, Senator Hirono's colleagues, educating them on the, this crisis out here in Hawaii um, is a little bit more challenging. And, and I think that is where there is a miscommunication between what it what reality is here on the ground and what's happening 5000 miles away in Washington, D.C. It's taken a little bit, a little bit of time to get there. Um, but, you know, it, it has been a struggle. It has been a struggle. And, and I have spoken personally myself to the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, back in early December. I've spoken to the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Gilday, back in December, to Secretary Del Toro, the Secretary of the Navy, back before they even came to Hawaii for December 7th and to be part of the, the blessing and christening of the USS Danny Noy. I told them what they would be walking into when they landed on Oahu and the people they were going to have to face, the military families in those early community town halls in December, who are being re relocated by the thousands down to Waikiki, who had no idea that they were about to spend Christmas in a hotel room or no idea that their kids would have to be for the next two and a half months. We're going on almost three months sitting in traffic back and forth from Waikiki to Nimitz Elementary, Makalapa Elementary, and all these different DOE schools where these affected students go and where the Navy's water system provides water and they haven't had running water in the last two and a half months. Uh, I, I think it, it has fallen on, on, on deaf ears. And, uh, you know, I, one great example is look at uh, the Navy's press release when they finally came public and decided to contest the order on February 2nd, February 3rd, where they have to issue a press release. And because of public outcry and outcry from our elected officials statewide, issue another press release with a highlighted section that says, oh, we're also looking at possible um, you know, decommission of the facility itself. We have tried to sit with the Navy to provide them advice, to give the most senior leaders at the Pentagon the advice to, to help us help you. But uh, it, 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 they have not taken advantage of that. And I don't know what else to do. And, and that leads me to believe that uh, they are not fully convinced that this facility needs to be shut down. And, and you know, we need to move in that direction. I want to ask you uh, uh, just a quick question on your 10-point COVID plan. There are two things in there that you called for. One was pre- and post-arrival testing, and the other was uh, including boosters to be uh, part of qualifying as fully vaccinated for entry uh, to the state and for safe travels and, and perhaps even to restaurants and other facilities. It feels like local leadership is actually walking back from that. We heard the governor say yesterday that it sounds like safe travels is not going to add a booster requirement. And in fact, they're looking to figure out how to sunset that program at some point. Um, that differs greatly with the points that you raised. Uh, do you think that the governor's making a bad decision there? Well, again, this is a dynamic situation. 
right? Things have changed from where they were three weeks ago. But, but I, frankly, many of these things should have been done a year and a half ago, right? This is like we're throwing down last minute, like, hey, you guys don't have a plan or, or something is not working. So here's some things to look at and chew on. Um, what you, you mentioned two things that's very important. And that should have been implemented and could have been implemented. And that's pre-travel and post-travel testing. You know, we have, and I, I said in my 10-point plan, we have something unique, Yanji, here in Hawaii, that 48 other governors across the nation would die for. And that's the ability to control its borders. Alaska has it. Hawaii has it. Some of our territories have it as well. But we never implemented that. Um, why? It's going to be too logistically hard. The lines at the airport were going to be too long. There's not enough tests. Every other major Pacific island country and nation in the Pacific, from Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, Tahiti, Singapore, Japan, is implementing pre- and post-travel testing. And it's your ability to, to flag variants that are coming into the state and do something about it. Uh, and, and so that was um, uh, part of my 10-point plan. Um, you know, it's, again, we, we have to prepare for that. What if we have another variant that's coming in the next three to four months? We have to look at how would we implement this? How can we start buying testing kits right now so we can have a strategic stockpile to address that issue? Has anyone flown down to Australia or Japan to look at what they're doing logistically to make it work at their airports? What type of policies do they have in place so that we can follow that model? That's what that was about. In terms of the booster shots, you know, that's Governor Iga's decision. And, um, you know, he's made that decision based on the current data right now and, and, uh, um, what his advisors are telling him. I can tell you, after being here on Maui, and I'm sitting here on Maui right now, Mayor Victorino, who implemented a booster requirement, um, after walking to Maui Memorial yesterday and talking to its leadership and also talking to um, small uh, pharmacies here around town, that there was a significant increase in people that got boosted from when the mayor made that announcement in early January to when it was implemented, about the third week in January, and finally, when he decided to rescind it um, just last week, a significant amount of people went and got their third shot. And people came in to get their first shot. That came straight from the medical professionals at Mari Memorial yesterday. So there's no doubt uh, that what the mayor did in that space and time allowed people to get the booster shot and increase those numbers here on the island of Maui. Think about how many lives that saved. Think about how many people um, that kept out of the hospital or kept people from getting symptomatic versus asymptomatic. Uh, and so, again, you, you have to have a plan. The plan changes. This is a dynamic situation. But let's articulate a strategic plan for the state. Don't just keep it indoors. Communicate it to the people. Work with our county mayors. Have a centralized plan for the state. Allow the mayor's latitude to create um, policies specific to their county. But have a statewide strategic plan and bring people together. Right? This... If, if I was governor, this 10-point plan immediately requires bringing in the, the tour industry, the hotel industry, bringing in small businesses, bringing in healthcare professionals, community leaders, Department of Education leaders, so we can sit down at the table and say, here, here's something to chew on. How can we adjust it? What can we do right now um, to make this better or to improve it or hold off on doing things or implement these things right now? That's what we need to do is bring the, and maybe it's happening. I don't know, but that's not how the people of Hawaii feel when I grow out uh, and talk to them throughout the state. They feel like our state is drifting right now and, and that we are not on a path that leads us out of COVID. And we can't afford to have another variant 
uh, hit the high peak summer travel season. That's only five months away. We need to put some of these measures in place um, and, and we need to communicate it. People can take bad news. They cannot take indecisiveness. They cannot take mixed messages, moving the goalposts, you know, bring people in, throw something down, think about it, talk about it, make a decision, and then communicate it as clearly as possible and be consistent. That's what's, that's what's needed right now. And um, hope well, that our time it. is, our time is almost up. A half an hour goes really fast in, the, in these conversations. Uh, but before we go, as we do with all our guests, we, we wanted to allow you uh, just an opportunity for just any final thoughts, closing statements on where we're at. Obviously there continues to be a lot of debate even going on right now in our <clears throat> comment section uh, and, and many of the comments that are coming in about your political future and what you <clears throat> would like to potentially be or, or where you would like to see yourself but uh, your final message right now for those who are watching out there this has been a tough two years you know i was in the state senate um when when we shut down the state back in march of uh you know 2020 and i like 1500 other national guardsmen across the state answered the call and um you know in the early um weeks of covid you know, um, was part of the Hawaii National Guard's response that still continues today to help us get through the, uh, this COVID pandemic. But people are tired. Um, people are COVID exhausted. And we need, to, we need to chart a new path forward for the state. We have so many challenges that need to be addressed beyond COVID. Um, our Alice counts across the state have gone up exponentially. People are one paycheck away from being in real economic trouble. We have housing issues, inventory issues, workforce issues because of COVID. We've got a lot of challenges facing the state today and we need, um, we need leadership. We need new energy. We need someone who can unite our state to bring people together um, that has compassion, that has aloha, that has empathy. And for me, Ryan, you know, I take myself back whether I'm sitting here in Maui or I'm walking in Hanalei, I always go back to that small little fishing village on Moko Keawe in South Kona, my family's home in Miloli. And I think about every day how those children are doing and, and how are we helping those families, the ones that don't have a voice, the ones that need somebody fighting for them every single day. And I try and I try and do that as a leader in Hawaii, as a leader in the United States Congress. It's been my greatest honor to walk the halls of Congress in the footsteps of Prince Kohil and other great Native Hawaiian leaders that have represented Hawaiian Congress. Of course, uh, my mentor, Senator Danakaka. And, and um, you know, I just am really appreciative for the people of Hawaii for giving me that honor. And uh, we deserve the best. The state of Hawaii deserves the best. And, um, you know, we'll see where my political future goes. But, but I can tell you that my dad would always tell me, boy, if you can help, you help. And you go where the people want you to go. And that's what I'm going to do. Um, so more to come. Mahalo. Well, if that's not a campaign announcement, I honestly don't know what is. So, <laughs> <laughs> we do appreciate your time this morning. Can I ask right before you go, I know we're out of time, but when you will make a decision one way or the other, there's so many people in the comments asking what you're going to do. You know, I, I right now I'm I'm really enjoying being and going throughout the second congressional district. I was on Kauai last week and Hanalei. 
I'm here on Maui. Um, I'm really enjoying being in my district, um, working with the people, hearing their issues, feeling how they feel about the future of Hawaii. And I'm going to take a little bit of time to do that. I think it's really important. It's really important to ho'olohe and listen. And uh, I like what I'm hearing. And, and, and people are starving for leadership. The state is starving for leadership. And uh, it's time to take the state in a new direction. And, and so we'll see. You know, no, no commitments, but uh, uh, anytime soon, but stay tuned. And, and it's important for me to do this um, right now, Yanji, because it, it, it's not about me. It, it's about you and your family and your children and our future and the people of Hawaii. And that's really important. And so uh, more to come. Well, when you're ready to make the announcement, either way, you are always welcome back on this show. So we thank you so much for uh, spending a half hour with us and updating us uh, on, on the issues that are uh, you know, currently facing your state and, and also your thoughts as you move into uh, what could be a, a busy campaign season. So thank you so much. Mahalo, Ryan Kale. Mahalo, Yanji. Aloha. 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 We see all your comments. Uh, he's not ready to announce just yet, but Ryan, that awfully that sound awfully close, and it does sound like he's really taking this seriously, uh, doing what he's calling sort of a listening tour, visiting on different islands. We've seen, um, you know, he's visiting different communities and hearing from constituents, and he says uh, that what he is hearing is that there's not excitement about the three folks who seem to be uh, running for governor. Of course, Vicky Cayetano is the only person who's officially announced, but we do know that uh, Lieutenant Governor. Josh Green and former uh, Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell, of course, have been raising money and have been pretty actively campaigning. Um, and he's saying from his vantage point, uh, there's still room in the race. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that caused a lot of people, as we said early on, that uh, <clears throat> kind of allowed people to maybe wonder if he was seeking another office was, was his 10 point plan uh, of COVID-19. Uh, he went into details about the reasoning why he felt he needed to do that, why he felt like he needed to be more critical of the EGA administration, uh, as well as those who fall under it, uh, which include the lieutenant governor, about their reactionary measures uh, for uh, the way in which COVID-19 was dealt with, specifically with Omicron. Uh, and, and a lot of people you know, saw that as maybe a potential flag that you know, he may be trying to come back home to seek this office. Uh, but he was very detailed in the way that he has presented that plan. It is a plan that has uh, circulated and made headlines, and a lot of people have had the opportunity to examine it. He's actually actually gotten credited uh, by some publications for that plan that he put forth. And so, uh, you know, him really saying that he felt like he needed to step in at that moment. And, you know, we heard from him about that plan and his decision to do that. Yeah, and also interesting to hear uh, what he's learned about Red Hill, and he's drawing a very firm line in the sand saying that he thinks that the facil facility should be defueled and, and permanently shut down. 80 years is enough, and it's time for other areas to bear some of that load for all of that fuel. He also uh, expanded more on that revelation he made yesterday about the cameras not being operational in at least two key points, uh, the majority of the cameras being down throughout the facility, which is worrisome given the national security importance of this. Uh, just, you know, it's hard to imagine that a year uh, or more later that the cameras still don't work. And so he's drawing a lot of attention to that and basically saying that the Navy, um, while they have been somewhat forthcoming in their conversations, just really has sort of exhausted that relationship here and that it's time to move on. 
Yeah, you know, it was a, a very intriguing conversation. Again, one that we've been trying to have for some time. So happy we were able to have the congressman here on our show. Uh, and we thank him for his time. And we thank you for all the comments. We're looking forward to uh, another show talking about this campaign season on Friday. We will be joined by Lieutenant Governor Candidate Sylvia Luke. We know that she plays an important role right now in the legislature controlling the Finance Committee in the House of Representatives. We'll get her thoughts uh, on her run and her bid to become the next lieutenant governor and also hear from political analyst Neil Milner on that race as well as uh, this governor race and how things could look should the Congressman uh, Kahele enter in what could be a, a very interesting 2022 campaign season. We're looking forward to that conversation and thank you for being a part of today's. Take care and aloha. See you Friday. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs and Beachside Roofing.